Welcome to another edition of Eusebius on Times Live. I am extremely excited to be speaking today to Mark Haywood. Any of you who have heard us interact over the years on various media platforms that I've been able to host him on will know how much I absolutely love his work. He plays many roles in our country and is not unfamiliar to you at all in the unlikely event that he is, in essence, for me, when I think about Mark, I think fundamentally about his activism, which goes back all the way to the 80s, but in particular, in more recent constitutional South African history, activism in relation to social justice questions around Section 27, his entry in particularly into the leadership of the AIDS Law Project and the Treatment Action Campaign was a really important part of fighting for the substantive rights, socioeconomic rights in our country to be animated and not just to be on paper committed to progressively in our constitution. Beyond that, of course, many of you over the last year or two or three will know Mark as someone who has done some excellent work as well. Daily Maverick is very lucky to have him as one of their sectional co-editors for Maverick Citizen, which is a civil society social justice segment of that online publication. And I think it gives them a kind of particularly ethical legitimacy around the questions he pursues in his division of it that I think expands the brand of Daily Maverick, in my opinion. And then, of course, because of all of this cumulative work overall, he is also a social and political commentator on some of the most important questions of the day. And the question we want to explore today is really to ask all of these new entrants that we have seen, particularly with younger, fresh political leadership at the helm, what might be the best ways to make sure that our political landscape benefit from them? And when I say that, I have in mind a number of different examples. Take the ones that are not quite so new, but new-ish still, Musi Maimane, who is the leader of the Build um, One South Africa movement. And he is attempting to get independence, even if they have differences ideologically, to do better than the established political parties. Then there is the former Midval mayor, Bongani Baloi, who has started and registered his own political party that will be contesting, of course, next year. And then perhaps the newest kid on the block is Rais Mzanzi. And you think of former editor of Business Day, Songhezo Zibi, and many others that he has managed to rope in and to harness their energies. And he has articulated a pathway to contesting as well. And I think that's quite exciting. You and I are fatigued by the mainstream options, the indices about how the country is doing in terms of our overall democratic health is not good. And the question has got to be asked, do you have an appetite for new entrants? And if you might, are they perhaps as new entrants not thinking about three or four steps ahead of where they need to be so that their goodwill is not maximized at the moment. And that's the assignment that I've given Mark and myself to puzzle through. You're listening to Eusebius on Times Live. That's this latest podcast on Times Live. And it's me, Eusebius McKaiser, exploring the major issues of the week. That means you're going to hear a lot of law, politics and ethics, how they intersect and how important these stories are in the life of all South Africans. 
When people saw their children must know these are sellouts. They put saliva on the paper. Mr. Julius Malema whispered and said, sing it, sing it. And then they shared that zone. No, I'm not going to apologize. apologize. Can I have my iPad, please? So they stole it. Mark, thank you so much for coming on the platform. Thanks, Eusebius, and thank you for such a kind introduction. Uh, it's great to have this conversation. I... Well, I mean, yeah, it's all very sincere, but thanks so much for coming on. I do appreciate it. I, I want to start off by firstly just speaking about the big picture before we get into the particular about Rise Mzamzi and some of the others. And maybe some of this is striked, but for the sake of completion, I want you to speak into it. We do have a massive political crisis, don't we? If we look at, for example, the state of the economy, the economy is not growing at more than 0.3%. We have millions of South Africans who are not just living in poverty, but extreme poverty. We've got unemployment levels that are, as we now know, by global standards and our own standards, some of the worst levels that we have ever had in our country and disproportionately burdened by those under the age of 34. And the implications of all of those facts, if we add the Gini coefficient, asset inequality, wealth inequality to it, inequalities in terms of education, are poor for our democratic health overall. And it means that it's really hard to exacerbate the crisis that we are in. How would you describe in a minute or three <laughs> the state of our democracy? Well, you've said it. We have a very deep social crisis. We're failing the vast majority of people in this country on a daily basis in terms of what are their constitutional rights, we must remember, to basic education, to healthcare services, to access to sufficient food, to social security. And we are leaving, you know, literally 80% of the population uh, in the dirt. And where we are most failing, or what is most failing them, is that the political system at the moment offers very little hope that people will get out of this quagmire of inequality and poverty. Now, Eusebius, you and I are great believers, not uncritically, in the constitution uh, of South Africa. Uh, I believe in it because it's a constitution that is wedded to social justice, to equality, to fundamental socioeconomic rights. But the constitution places political parties at the center of its schema uh, in the Bill of Rights. Um, uh, and so if political parties fail consistently in government, as they have done now, then it does force a very, very deep rethink. And I think that what is going on in our country now is that what we generally call civil society, uh, activists hmm. from all stripes and colors and walks of life and issues have nearly 30 years after the advent of democracy come to the realization that the existing political parties, all of them, are incapable of getting us out of this mess. And that rather than civil society organizations engaging after the fact, letting the damage be done, the failures accumulate, in a sense, the time has come now to engage with proactively with the political system. And I, and I think that that is 
is part of what is going on. And that's a radical and a very interesting and a very exciting moment for us. It's a departure. Yes. It's not unique, I'd say, Eusebius, to South Africa. It's very interesting if you watch some of these ha- happening internationally. Believe it or not, the re-election of uh, or the election of Joe Biden and particularly the progressive wing of the Democrats in the United States owes a lot mm. to a civil society decision consciously yes. to engage with political systems. And now it seems as if that shift is now beginning to Absolutely. affect us as well. And it's a good thing. Yeah. And so before we get to the critical considerations to maximize those energies, I want to say to those leaders, many of them are my peers, your peers, that have done that pivot and have refused to accept that there needs to be this thing called the political arena, civil society, and there's a stare off that if you are Zaki Ahmad, you can say, well, I want to have a crack at becoming an MP and go cause some nuisance on an important portfolio committee rather than only being outside with a placard. And I think that's a good thing on Zaki's part. Similarly, this would have been something no political or very few political journalists would have thought or journalists full stop 15 years ago. Why must I only be an editor or a former editor or a columnist I can be a former editor who actually sets up a political party. And so I want to commend those colleagues of ours, fellow South Africans, full stop, who recognize that legal authority, for better or worse, in years in political parties that are the government of the day, because they have the constitutional power to form a government, collect taxes, disperse them, Decide how power, formal power, and force in particular, is unleashed or used positively or negatively in society. And therefore, if you really want to structurally change the conditions, you have got to get involved in the business of the day beyond just being a podcast host like Eusebius. And so to that extent, I want to commend them. But I want to see whether we can work through as many of six points. We probably won't get to all of them today, but let's see. Three points that I had discussed in an article, three points that Mark had made to me, generously engaging my work as he always does. And I'm going to start with yours. We take Rise and Zanzi as a starting point. They just one example through which to make a couple of principal points. They are listening. They are forming relationships and communities, the length and breadth of the country, Mark, they will say some of the even left-wing critics of competitors who say, oh, you are just a bunch of desktop researching kids with laptops in Ravonia, don't know what they've secretly been doing, going to communities on experiential learning missions around democratization already. So we want to give them some kudos and factually get the record right and not to misdescribe what they are doing in a bottom-up manner. But one of the first points you raise is that even so, there's a difference between, and take it from here and tell me whether I'm even getting you right in terms of the spirit of your point. There's still a difference between a listening exercise that may result in a people's manifesto later in the year and already demonstrating practically how to change communities and what is the difference and why is that difference crucial in terms of whether or not someone may end up voting for you? Yeah, you you are getting me right, Eusebius. And uh, 
first of all, let me say, I think Rise and Zanzi is a very important development as well. And I commend Songhezo and Vuiswa Ramachopa and the others who have put this initiatives together, and I've kind of been quietly watching them, uh, their thinking and organizational development uh, uh, process. Uh, but now they've come out of the closet, as it were, and uh, announced hmm. that they're forming a political party and they're going to contest elections, then a new set of challenges present themselves. And as I said to you, you know, people in this country want to see people standing for parliament who have integrity, personal integrity, uh, commit to transparency, commit to servant leadership, and so on. But I, and, and that is vital. It's indispensable. But I don't think it's enough. I don't think it's going to be enough to build a new movement on. Because people in this country are also very distrusting, and they've heard politicians before claim to represent all of those things and then go and sell them out and pursue their own self-interest the moment they get into, in, into parliament. So that's one thing. And I'll come back to that in a second. But 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 the second is that I think it's vital for Rise and Zanzi and the others that you mentioned not to just see this transition as transition from social civil society movement to political parties, but to recognize that both sides remain indispensable. Building power in communities, building social movements at community levels as part of an election campaign is vital to ensuring the success of the election moment, but to the retention of power after that moment. Even if you've only put 10 people in, the 10 people should just be the tip of an iceberg of a society that has become much more mobilized and much more powerful uh, as a result of the uh, as a result of the election campaign. And so as I look at Rise and Zanzi, I think, okay, well, listening is important. But what are you doing to build trust in those communities now? And what I think you should be doing is two things. One, you should be seen as people who are purveyors of some very big ideas, new ideas about how we have to change our politics and economics. But secondly, in every community today that you're mobilizing in, and remember, we have another year before the election, there are social issues that activists could build trust around. They, these organizations could be helping millions of people to acquire identity documents, for example, not just for the sake of the election, although that's important, but because an, an identity document is like a modern gompas in some ways. You know, you can't get a grant, you can't get into school, you can't get almost anything. It's a, it's a gateway to, to rights. They could be fighting on social security. They could be fighting on access to sufficient food and water and making progress on those uh, on, on those particular questions. So I guess that's my advice. Let's see how we use the next 12 months, not just what we do in 12 months' time. Hmm. Okay, so two out of your three critical points, I think, have emerged already there. We'll shine the spotlight even more on the second one in a second. But I think you've already themed both of them. So the one is around the importance of practically building communities up so that someone goes into the voting booth, besides the fact that it's inherently 
improving their lot in life, but that they also go into the voting booth with direct memory of your helping to improve their conditions in their community. And that is work that is in addition to what's already being done that is important, and I and I, and I want to be very fair to some of these new entrants, that yes, of course, if you have sister organizations or you yourself and your colleagues are doing civil and democracy building exercises in, in township halls, for example, community centers, where you use theater, political theater, gaming, and all sorts of other democratic citizenship-based exercises, experiential in nature, to make sure that you draw out the appetites that are latent, but perhaps dying due to cynicism, rightly so, to engage the state and various aspects of our democracy, or that you simply also tell people about perhaps information they lack in terms of their rights and how to access their rights. So that's important. But it's almost, isn't it, like a mirror of first and second generation rights. It's almost as if you are saying, if I can put it differently as well, that besides campaigns that are aimed at connecting with your potential voters in terms of civil and political rights, also make sure that some of your resources are spent on connecting with them on their socioeconomic rights, because it's those in particular that will endear them to you. But then you've already snuck in the second item that I was going to ask you to expand on, but perhaps do so more bluntly now. You say that preaching clean politics is not good enough. You need a couple of big ideas. What do you mean? Well, I'm going to answer that, Eusebius. I just want to go back to where you've just come from quickly, which is this thing about the juxtaposition, although they flow into each other between civil and political rights and, and socioeconomic rights. You know, Tuli Madonsela frequently says that people say to her, uh, we have democracy, but we don't have freedom. Uh, we can't eat democracy. And I really think that people treat democracy very, very seriously, but they need to eat. They need human dignity. They need safety. And it is these social and economic issues that have become so critical to people's day-to-day -day lives. And the point is that our constitution, and this has been my experience in life as an activist, gives us a lot of power to make headway on those issues. And so an election campaign can be a way of mobilizing simultaneously to make progress on those socio-economic issues at a local level, and that will build trust and that will be build conviction that what we are seeing is something that is different to what we have seen before. But to take your 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 question, I think we're going into a very, very different political and economic period. You know, things that used to hold up societies when I was younger are falling apart very fast. The welfare state or the social contract has fallen apart. The next years after 2024, however good the political leadership are going to be tumultuous and very difficult years. Difficult years created by climate crisis, difficult years created by geopolitical factors such as war, difficult due to, to, to food. 
And I think there's a need for the new entrants to our politics to demonstrate that they have radical but pragmatic and feasible and principled ideas. So so I, I think that, you know, we are already in a new political and economic era in South Africa and internationally. And it is going to tax even the best, most principled, most honest of politicians. And so we need our new uh, would-be leaders uh, in and out of parliament to show that they have big ideas that will equip us for the next decade and beyond. And what I mean by big ideas is ideas that are they have to be radical because ruptures are taking place, mm. but they have to be feasible. They have to be pragmatic, but they have to be principled. They have to be within the rule of law. We can change the world and still maintain the rule of law. There's no doubt about it, rather than being arbitrary and unreasonable. And, and I've always said, you see this, that that's one of the beauties of our constitution. It allows us to make very, very deep, profound change, but do so within the rule of law. Absolutely. So I'm looking for, for I want to see some big ideas on, on the climate crisis. I want a political party to think about very seriously, for example, the idea of universal basic income and to address it head on, not as a slogan, mm. but actually to do the to go out and do the work, mm. explaining to ordinary people and explaining to powerful powerful people why something like a basic income grant has become necessary and will be good for the economy. I even want to see people when it comes to the climate crisis, political parties saying, okay, we are going to work to move solar power mm. into this poor community. And here's the plan. This is how we are going to going to do it. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a need to distinguish yourself on more than just the fact that you are not the old, corrupted, discredited political parties, that you're something different. You have to win in the terrain of future ideas as well. Yeah. Couldn't agree with you more. The third point, Mark, um, that you had made to me is a practical point that I think you were tapping into your experience on the ground as an activist. 10 organizations existing all with the same bona fide desire to change the world is fantastic. When you come up against a behemoth called the government of the day that is simply allowing people to die needlessly by withholding life-prolonging drugs, one of the questions you got to confront yourself is, do we need 10 leaders of 10 organizations or will we be better if we were to join hands and be one organization? Talk us through why you think that's an important tactical dilemma, potentially, or strategic one for these many new entrants to have to think through. Each one of them want to be party leaders, for example, and they might have to read cheesy book titles such as The Leader Without a Title. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks. You know, the first thing that I would say is that the electoral reform that has just been signed by the president 
Although it permits independent candidates to stand in 2024, does it in the most uh, 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 miserly fashion possible and gives very little space yes. to civil society and independent, so-called independent uh, uh, candidates. There isn't time today to discuss the mechanics of what is yes. proposed, but even though it's being probably going to be contested in the constitutional court, it looks like that's what we're probably going to have to live with for 2024. For mm. so, so it's going to be difficult. And what worries me a little bit at the moment is that I see a bunch of people, Rise and Zanzi, Borsa, Rise South Africa, uh, Zaki, uh, Bongani, Baloy that you mentioned, essentially standing for the same things. Uh, uh, you know, there's even talk of a climate justice uh, uh, movement entry into uh, independent yeah. uh, political participation, essentially standing for the same thing. So when it comes to whatever it is, April, May 2024, Eusebius, what are you and I going to do when when we know we don't want any of the ANC and the EFF and the DA, et cetera, et cetera, but then there's a group of people who we quite like, who we know, who are principled, but they're all on the ballot in front of us. Effectively, we're going to have to split and weaken our civil society vote, but it's also going to create confusion uh, for the electorate. So I, I'm just thinking, I mean, I'm not making this as a hard proposal, and I'm certainly not preaching to any of these organizations and, and, and colleagues, but I do think that this is going to have to be a discussion uh, that takes place before too long, because what we are looking at is the interest of the people, not ultimately the interests of the new political entrants that come as independents or come as civil society. We're looking at how do we leverage power again? How do we leverage political power so that we can start to fix that country? And no, none of the new entrants must get into their heads that it's ultimately just about them. It's about them because they may be critical in catalyzing something, but it's also there's a bigger picture issue as well. I, don't I get you, and I think you're right. In and a jumbled way, but... Yeah, no, it's not. You're absolutely clear, and I get you. And even when you say they mustn't think it's about them, even then I would I would add, not that an English major like you need me to clarify your your framing, but I would add that that's not even an ad hominem. Someone might, as an individual, stand hoping to have systemic or systems change that can that they can contribute towards. But inadvertently, um, just because you don't know each other, time is running out, you think it will be, I don't know, just too um, administratively laborious to try and do what John Stienhausen is doing with the established parties and, you know, find an opportunity to meet with the other new entrants and think to yourself, you know what, I can just go it alone and make sure that I at least get in and I know that I can make a difference. But what you are suggesting is that... Um, if ultimately this is about structural political analysis and about power and how to neutralize political power that have been used not to animate constitutional supremacy, but at times to subvert it, then it's really important that, that people speak to each other. And I think that those three major sets of points for me are really important um, for, 
for these new entrants to, to, to think about. I had put my thoughts for those of you who follow my, my writing um, in an article, or maybe you don't and just listen to the podcast, but in case we, we not because we don't have time, I think um, the conversation is flowing nicely, but um, ESCOM might, which is a, another theme around which a new entrant can come up with new ideas, might interfere with us in about 15 minutes' time. My my three points you'll find in an article entitled, Rise and Zanzi has decent odds, but should tackle three major challenges. So in addition to what Mark had said, clear couple of ideas, modern, feasible, big, bold, radical. It's really important that you have that. Speak to each other. His second important point that he had made. The first one, yes, listening is important, but you can't just listen. You already have to make a difference to communities so that they have experiential knowledge of what you are capable of when they decide how to vote and are motivated to go and vote. But I want you to tell me your thoughts very quickly on each of the three points that I had tossed out, Mark, and the extent to which you would prioritize them. And I think they dovetail. I held back while we were talking about yours, but one or two of mine seem to be synergistically intersecting with yours. The first point that I made was you need money. How does one do the kinds of things, for example, that you mentioned, if a lot of the donors... I'm not thinking straight, and I hope some donors are listening to this conversation. Some of them know that the ANC is yesterday's bake, but they will still ask the new entrants that you managed to get Trevor Manuel on your side. We need some <laughs> of these big guns. It's the only way the electorate's going to really, really respond to a new entrance. So they, they seem to be as held psychopolitically by the, by the grip of the ANC's history, for example, um, as some voters. So can one demonstrate an ability to help communities with IDs, getting your social grants and all of those things when it's difficult to persuade donors to take a chance on you? I agreed with all of your three points, starting with your point one on, on money. Uh, it, it's a critical uh, question. You, you know, what worries me is, is that the people with money, the donors that you talk about, uh, are very risk averse. Um, they stick with what is familiar. And although they spend much time criticism, criticizing what is familiar, they think it's in their own self-interest to stay with it. Um, and, and, and it points to a broader problem, which is we've got to break these patterns of behavior if we're going to be capable of confronting the future. You know, just as a slight aside, you know, last week there was a presidential health summit, the second presidential health summit. You know, why people flocked off to a presidential health summit that everybody knew was going to achieve nothing, I do not know, but they continue to go because we're molded into that type of behavior. And it's the same with funding of political parties or new entrants, mm. that you're scared, you're not visionary enough, you're not prepared to, to stand out. But I would make one other point on financing, you see this. These big donors that we're thinking about are important, but I also think that, that the electorate of South Africa, the particularly the poor electorate of South Africa, will contribute financially 
to new political movements if they believe that those new movements are going to make a difference. People will invest. And so I think that it shouldn't just be a question of looking to the so-called high net worth individuals who are in our country. We need to look up and we need to look down. But you're right. Completely agree with you on point one. I think my second point is covered by yours. I just framed it differently. And the second point I had made was to the effect that it's really important that these new entrants are precise in what they state they want to do. I have said so to some of them, and I engage them openly and publicly. I'm not behaving like a private consultant. It's part of my commentary. Um, And so they they know this. for example, and, and this is the sense in which it is exactly the same as, as your point about big ideas. I don't, I, as much as I love political theory as a philosophy major and as a political commentator, there are certain terms that have become vague and woolly and everyone claims them. I'm for social democracy. I stand for non-racialism. Hmm. Um, you know, we've got to play in the center. The center must hold. Um and that kind of sloganeering for me is just vague. Um, every party in this in in South African politics stand for for invariably will say things like, you know, um, social justice is important to us. Um, Helen Zilla will say she's a social democrat. Um, Songeza will say he's a social democrat, but Songeza will say I'm not in the same WhatsApp group as that person in terms of our politics. The only way those statements can all be true is if those terms have lost their meaning. And so for me, it is really important that um, they they don't fear being absolutely blunt. Tell me you're an anti-racist. Tell me you uncritically support the use instrumentally of demographic racialized data to measure how far we have come in terms of dealing with economic injustice in corporate South Africa. And it's that level of precision I, for Eusebius, want from a politician. But sometimes I see the new entrants using lexicon that is really dull and imprecise, Mark. I have little to say, Eusebius. I I completely agree with you. Um, We talk of politics, of slogans, of cliches, of platitudes, of words that don't really mean anything anymore. And we have to give content to those things. You know, even when you say you're a constitutionalist, frankly, I say, well, what does that mean? I mean, constitutionalism (laughs) doesn't just mean political democracy. It means greater economic democracy. It means a government that works towards building equality, that gears its economic policy towards uh, greater equality and and so on. So... Yeah, I mean, I just uh, you know, cut the bullshit and and listen to yourself mm. as you go out there. Because if you if you continue using the same language, then actually you you you're coming from the same brand that you say that you yeah. reject. But well, I, I think, think it's that- exciting. I think it's exciting, Mark, and it, it takes us to the last point for which yeah. we've got three to five minutes. I think one of the fears, and I really hope, especially um, the new entrants that are that are my age and and younger will will listen to this point. And the fall has taught us this. There's no point in being radical challengers of 
the imperfect gifts handed down by those who worked hard before us to fight coloniality and apartheid if you are going to modicoddle a bunch of people. I think sometimes it's not that we lack the language to be plain and clear in distinguishing our message. I think it's sometimes just a subconscious even or unconscious fear that you're going to piss off some people if you are blunt about what you stand for. And I say, well, do that. If, for example, you have an anti-racism ticket, and that's just one example, it's one of an issue I happen to be passionate about. So what if 200 people are going to unleash bots accounts on you? Uh, you've made the strategic principled and mathematical calculation that that is what the market needs. It's also politically and morally the right thing. And so you can afford to be blunt and very clear about where you stand. Um, and so don't dither. It doesn't make sense, which leads me to my last point. And again, there's a dovetail with what you had said earlier. You said, go into the communities and talk to them and be very clear what you mean if you have a big idea around universal um, basic income grant, for example. I agree with you. And I'd said to one of these new entrants, you guys will have to learn something that might seem shallow, but it's not shallow. And this is where some of the current small parties are doing quite well. Um, and I take someone like Gaten McKenzie as, a, as an illustrative success on this point, that you have got to be a good speaker and communicator. There's no point in being an excellent commentator that can write trenchant analysis if you enter the political arena without being able to be I think Zaki is going to be good at this. You were good at this um, as an activist. Um, and it doesn't mean that you've got to shout loudly and be an Oxford Union trained debater like Eusebius. You can have the quiet speaking presence of an Edwin Cameron, but you've got mm. to think about political rhetoric. And yeah. I think some of the new entrants have got great people in terms of ethics and ideas but I think they've deprioritized the seemingly boring, but sometimes pivotal question of how do I actually communicate in the middle of Yeovil? I think, for example, Musi, Pastor Aloysius, naturally is a good speaker. But some of these other entrants haven't yet allocated thinking time to political communication. Speak into that for me in the last three minutes. Well, political communication is everything. And... It's not a question of how do you dumb down political ideas. It's a question of do you understand political ideas to such a degree that you can put them across in a way that is understandable to people who may not have the same immersement or political training. You know, we did it in the Treatment Action Campaign with what we call treatment literacy. We, we, we taught people the science of HIV, virology, medicines, opportunistic infection. infection. We, did, we were able to do it in a non-patronizing, talking down fashion. And people want to grapple with real issues and real ideas, not to be, to be talked down to. And I think that is what is most persuasive. And that is what will be most persuasive as we go into this this next period it's not about trying to be everything to everybody it's not about trying to find the lowest common denominator across a spectrum of people it's about taking a position articulating that position in an informed 
and intelligent and carefully thought through way and yeah. trying to persuade and win people over. That's what Absolutely. you have to do. Yeah. You have to go out to win people over with ideas, not to, to go out and just find your own echo chamber out there. Yeah, absolutely. Mark, as always, absolutely brilliant. Um, I feel like, you know, my, my day is over. I've done enough for my bosses <laughs> in the country. You've enriched um, this conversation. It's critically important. And this is not anti-ANC, anti-government, anti-DA. It is ultimately about pro-democratization. And, and I think that's worth fighting for rather than being jaded. Thank you so much for speaking into all of the points as eloquently as you always do. 